following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We're going to talk today, part two, about following God. We're doing our statement of faith. Last week was just kind of an introduction about why it's important that we have these foundationally true beliefs, because these beliefs, if we genuinely absorb them, are things that guide our life, and they're intended to give us direction to the way in which we live. So as we move now into our statement of faith, and last week's notes had our statement of faith printed out. You can see it on our website as well. Our first section has to do with the Bible because what follows on the rest of our statement of faith is following from what God has revealed to us through his word. So it's simply establishing the importance of the Bible and the trustworthiness of the Bible and the kind of impact it's meant to have on our life is probably a good place to start. So here is our statement about the Bible on our website. We believe the Holy Bible to be the inspired word of God, inerrant in its original manuscripts. It is our standard for faith and practice and the measure by which all of life and personal revelation is to be evaluated. And there's a number of scripture references that go with that. We're purposefully in our statement of faith trying to keep it succinct. So what I want to do this morning is expand on the implications of this statement of faith for what we believe about the Bible. So first of all, we claim that the Bible is breathed out or inspired. This has been a standard way of understanding the Bible for 2,000 years. It simply means that God has expressed himself accurately, uniquely, and sufficiently through human authors. So it occurs in a context. So you're going to see in the original manuscripts, the Bible is written in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek. You're going to see personalities of individual writers emerge. You're going to see that some writers like to focus on certain things more than other writers. It doesn't rob the people writing Scripture of their individuality or personality. We don't, as Christians, take the view that God kind of turned people into robots and they did automatic writing of some sort. The idea is that God desired to have truth revealed to us. And so he inspired these writers to write down the truth that he inspired, and he ensured that it was accurately and sufficiently portrayed. We also make the claim that the Bible is unique, and that it's the only revelation we have from God that is like this, to which we give this level of trust. Now, we would also claim that creation is a type of revelation. In Christian history, this is called general revelation versus something like the Bible, which is specific general revelation. The Bible tells us things we can't discover on our own. God's creation is also a revelation of God. Romans 1 is clear about this. But it's a different kind of revelation. We claim that the Bible is unique. It is the only thing in its category. No other revelation carries the authority of the Bible. Secondly, we claim the Bible is inerrant. So first of all, we claim it's inspired. The second is that it's inerrant. This is the way Dr. Paul Feinberg explains it. When all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm. You've probably noticed in the last couple years, uh, messages you're getting from the pulpit talk a lot about the context of the Bible, understanding the culture, understanding the language, understanding what the original audience would have heard versus ways we can distort it 2,000 years later as we think about things. This is the idea the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted 
will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm. John Piper says it this way, what the authors intend for us to understand or obey, properly understood in its context, is true. So there's a couple things that we need to have to make sure this happens. One is proper understanding of context. I'm not going to revisit that today because we've revisited that a couple times this year, and I would just point you toward our website. And when I post these notes on our website, I'll try to make sure to put some links in for previous sermons on how to properly understand things in context. But I want to talk a little bit this morning about the confidence we have that the Bible that's in front of us is the Bible that God intends us to have. So this brings me to my third claim. The first is that the Bible is inspired. The second is that it's inerrant. The third is that it is canonical. So canon is simply a word that means ruler. And I tried to find a nice picture of a ruler. It's harder than you might think. So I'm going with tape measure. So it's just something by which everything else is measured. I believe I talked last week about when we as Christians want to think about issues, we start with the Bible. So the Bible is the measuring stick. If I can make maybe a weird analogy, if I'm going to cut boards for my deck on the back of my house, I can guess. I can kind of eyeball it and go, ah, I think that's about 27 inches. And I might get kind of close. Odds are good I won't. Or I can get out a measuring stick and I can measure 27 inches. That's the idea of what we think of when we think of the Bible. When we say the Bible is the canon, we mean it's the measuring stick. It helps us make sure that as we think or guess or feel things about the world, we can measure it with the Bible. So let's talk a little bit about why certain books made it into the Bible and others didn't. Old Testament. So Ezra was a writer in the uh, 400s B.C. He recorded a list of 22 books. Now, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. Understand that the Jewish people at that time condensed them all into 22, so they combined a few books. So it's the same Old Testament we have now. They just kind of measured what was what in a slightly different way than we did. And they gave these books to a group called the Sophorim, and these were priests in the temple. They eventually became known as the Sanhedrin. You might recognize that word from the New Testament. And shortly after that, the Jews closed the Old Testament canon for two reasons. Well, actually, for one reason, I'm giving you two quotes. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, said that succession of the prophets had ceased. And the Talmud said the Holy Spirit had departed from Israel. This is an idea that is widely accepted that between around 300 or so B.C. and the birth of Christ, the Jewish community, which was largely in exile at that point, their belief was that the Holy Spirit had departed from them. Now, you can debate about the, the theological merits of that. What they meant was prophets were no longer being inspired to write holy scriptures. So there's a gap of about 300 years. So Ezra had already recorded the books up to that point. Josephus, he writes this in the first century A.D., so around the time Jesus was alive. And he's writing this on behalf of the Jewish community. We do not have an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another as the Greeks have, but only 22 books, once again they combined the 39 to 22, which contain the records of all past times 
which are justly believed to be divine, and of them five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind until his death. And the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. So from 400 BC, we see the Jewish community agreeing these are the books God has used to reveal himself to the Jewish community. You see once again in the first century AD from Josephus, yes, these are the books that God intends. When you get to New Testament writings, there was at least five requirements for a book to make it into the New Testament. Depending where you read up on this, people might give six or seven. It kind of depends how much you want to combine some ideas or how much you want to make them very specific. I'm going with five. First, it had to be written by a first-generation apostle or disciple. This is why... If you hear the term the Gnostic Gospels, this is why they don't make it. They weren't written until two, three, four hundred A.D. This is why if you read the Da Vinci Code, for example, it'll make a big deal about how uh, terrible Christians kept very important books out of the Bible. These are the Gnostic Gospels. They were written much, much later. They were never going to make it into the canon of the Bible because they weren't written close enough to the time Jesus lived. Actually, if you go to a bookstore, and it's um, a, not a Christian bookstore, let's say you go to Books A Million, and this isn't a knock on Books A Million. I love Books A Million. But if you go to their section on the Bible, you'll see a lot of books about the lost books of the Bible or something to do with the suppression in Christian history of particular manuscripts. They're talking about things that were written generally hundreds of years after this canon was closed. It wasn't close enough to the time of Christ. If they weren't written by a first-generation apostle or disciple, they weren't going to make it into the Bible. The second thing was, were they authentic? So, do historical traditions confirm that the people who claim to have written these books actually wrote these books? Ubiquity is a fancy word for, were they everywhere? Did they have continuous and widespread use? This is why it took some time for the New Testament canon to solidify, because these books had to circulate, or these in most cases, these letters had to circulate throughout the early church, and there had to be widespread agreement. We know who wrote it. We know that, as we're going to see here in a second, it's consistent with other things that we're aware of that are already in the canon. So it takes some time. You have to remember, it's not like today where we can email someone or you could post something online, and within a couple days, you can get feedback from the world. It just took some time. The fourth one is universality, which simply means does whatever new writing is being presented for the New Testament, is it consistent with Old Testament writing? And as the New Testament slowly gains books, is this still consistent with what we've already accepted? And then finally, does it change lives? Does it have a, mere, a spiritual and moral effect? You'll find, by the way, that there are other books written around this time that the early church admired, but they just simply didn't put into the canon. So, for example, there's a book called The Shepherd of Hermes, which, if you get a chance to read it, is going to sound an awful lot like you're reading the New Testament. It doesn't make it a heretical book. And in fact, it might be a book with some really good things in it. It just doesn't make it into the canon because it doesn't meet these requirements. 
The New Testament itself quotes some other books. It's clear that within the churches, there were other writings um, circling, that's the word I want, that the church was taking seriously, but they didn't take them seriously enough to put them in here because it did not meet these requirements. They were very careful. Some of the books that you will see in a Catholic Bible, which are part of what they call the deuterocanonical books, there's some of these other writings that were circulating, either between 300 B.C. or I think actually all of them are between 300 B.C. and the life of Christ. And they're great for history, and they have some good things in them, but at least in the Protestant tradition and the earliest traditions of the Bible, they didn't make it because they didn't meet these five criteria. So the shape of the current Bible as we have it, it developed, it took a little bit of time, but not much time considering the way things worked back then. So Clement, by A.D. 95, he had definitely said, these eight New Testament books are in. And keep in mind that the, the Gospels were written in the 70s or so, so this is 15 years after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John were done writing. Clement had chosen eight that he said, for sure these are in. Polycarp by A.D. 108, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, by the way, he said there was 15. Ignatius by A.D. 15, he notes seven. Irenaeus by 130 has the current canon. So does Origen in 185. By about 150 to 180, pretty much all the books that you see here were widely accepted. Uh, in fact, in 140, we found fragments of something called the Muratorian Fragment, which it records a list of books very similar to what we have today. Um, there was another dude at the same time, I hope I get this right, Scott, because Scott was just telling me about this this morning, named Marcion, who was considered a heretic, and he lists the same list of books that people have accepted in the Bible. And then following councils affirm them over time. So once again, like I said, it, it takes a little bit of time because they're circulating these things and getting widespread confirmation that indeed the people we say wrote them wrote them and that what it's saying conforms with the rest of Scripture. They were looking for a unity of opinion amongst the early church. So we claim the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, and it's canonical. And then it brings us to the next point that is reliable. Because even if we have a canon that was established, are we confident that the Bible you hold in your hand or that you look up online or on your phone is the same one that the early Christian church was reading? One of the big knocks on the Bible today is that what if we just... We lost the early information. It got so distorted. What if the church throughout history has had an agenda and they've gone in and they've changed things and inserted things and taken stuff out? How confident are we? I've got footnotes. I don't want to get lost in the weeds on this, but let me show you one particular picture that I think is really helpful in talking about this. And this is from the Christian Research Journal. What you see, that black dot in the center of the screen that's simply going to represent a point in time, an event. If you look on the right side with all the yellow bubbles, those rings, those lines, I believe each one represents 100 years. Think of it almost like a tree ring. What you see is the amount of time from the original event, that's the black dot, to the time that we have recovered manuscripts that are considered original manuscripts. So if you see, for example, Homer, not from The Simpsons, this is a different guy. 
Uh, we have 1,757 manuscripts that are considered ancient manuscripts. But you'll also notice that in this case, it's 400 years from the time of the event till we get the first manuscript, which is a fair amount of time. If you take, for example, the very top one, Plato, he's one of the most recognizable names because he makes that cool little putty. Um, Plato joke. Uh, you'll see there's 210 manuscripts considered original, but it's 1,300 years from the time that he writes until we get the first manuscript. And in fact, back in my college days when I was forced to study Plato, there was actually debate about just how confident can we be that what we actually read, that people ascribe to Plato actually came from Plato, because that was a long time. So now look on the left. What you get with the New Testament from the time of its writing until the very beginning, the time gap is 40 years till we get our first manuscript. And we have 5,795 of them. So if you just compare that dark red bubble to the yellow bubbles, how close they are to the original versus how far some of the others are, you recognize, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit more here in a second, that biblical manuscripts, we have far more information and examples that we do any other kind of ancient manuscript. And if we think of all the ones on the right as being reliable, how much more should we think of the ones on the left as being re reliable? The broader bubble on the left are now translations as the church spread. You begin to get the Bible in more and more different languages, and now you have this huge wealth of information. And if you go to the next screen, between A.D. 100 and 300, there are 36,000 early quotations of the New Testament in documents from the early church fathers. So now this is different from what you just saw. You could recreate the New Testament from simply fragments we have from early church fathers quoting the New Testament. F.F. F. Bruce summarizes it this way. There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. If the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. B.B. Warfield says it can be asserted with confidence that the sacred text is exact and valid and no article of faith and no moral precept in it has been distorted or lost. I give you some examples in the footnotes of what this looks like. The bottom line is this. If you hear someone make the argument that we ought to be skeptical that the current Bible we have is different from the original Bible, they're simply wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're wrong. I don't want <laughs> to soften that at all. That's just the reality is we have the Bible that the original people had. If you are interested in more information on that, uh, I do have some recommended reading lists at the end of the notes, which will also be online. Um, you can ask me, or frankly, Scott Smith probably has a head full of far more information about where to go to read up on this than I do. All right, so the Bible's inspired, it's an Aaron, it's canonical, it's reliable. Number five, we claim the Bible is knowable. That is, it can be studied accurately. If you go to our website, we adhere to what's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and here's a key paragraph. We affirm the necessity of interpreting the Bible according to its literal or normal sense. The literal sense is the meaning which the writer expressed. 
Interpretation according to the literal sense will take account of all figures of speech and literary forms found in the text. This means the correct interpretation is the one which discovers the meaning of the text in its grammatical forms and in the historical and cultural context in which the text is expressed. The Bible can be understood. Are there parts that are confusing? All God's people said, yes. But one of the fascinating things, just about how historical research unfolds and archaeology unfolds, is that we are getting more and more information that's helping us understand parts of the Bible that are confusing. I've always felt that the key message of the Bible, what we need to know for salvation and the revelation of God and Jesus that is necessary for us is clear. In fact, if you'd ask me, what are the hardest parts of the Bible? The parts that are hard to understand or the parts that are easy to understand? It's the parts that are easy to understand because they really challenge me. Uh, I don't even need to figure out the complex parts to be humbled about what the Bible does as it holds up a mirror to me and to my life. But when you get to confusing sections of the Bible, if I can encourage you not to give up. The internet is a wonderful tool. Uh, you got to use it with care because there's weird people out there that offer weird things. Um, but, and this is where it's important, I think, to do this in community to get people to help us figure out where to do good research. There are so many good things happening right now that are just opening up parts of the Bible that at times were just a little uncertain or you quite, weren't quite sure what to do with them. But we claim that the Bible is knowable. It's always been knowable about the key things that have to do with life and godliness. Um, it's becoming increasingly open with some of the more confusing things or the parts that are hard to understand. All right, number six. Claim the Bible's inspired, inerrant, canonical, reliable, knowable, and we also claim it's true. And everything else from our statement of faith is going to build from this. Because if the Bible's not true, then our statement of faith is just silly because we would be building it on something that's not true. But since our claim is the Bible is true, this is crucial. J.D. Anderson says, Here is a faith firmly rooted in certain historical events a faith which would be false and misleading if those events had not actually taken place, but which, if they did take place, is unique in its relevance and exclusive in its demands on our allegiance. Those events did not merely set a process in motion and then themselves sink back into the past. The unique historical origin of Christianity is ascribed permanent, authoritative, absolute significance. What happens once is said to have happened once for all. What does Paul say? If the resurrection didn't happen, we are all fools for believing in Jesus. Our, our faith is bounded, or our faith is founded on the premise that Jesus was real, he died a real death, he rose in a real physical resurrection, that what the Bible recounts is true. It's not just imaginatively true or metaphorically true or mythologically true. It's true. And because it's real events in history, we have a foundation on which to stand. So among that truth, the Bible reveals who God is. The Bible reveals who we are. That is, it talks about our human nature. 
The Bible tells us what's wrong with the world and then tells us the solution for the world. The Bible tells us how we're designed to live. If we believe God is a creator, and we believe God has everything to say about how he designed the world to work, that's important. The Bible reveals why we have value, worth, and dignity. Ultimately, the Bible reveals truth. And that truth is something that we call, I throw out a $10 phrase here, existentially meaningful. That simply means the Bible has something to say about why our existence has meaning. There was a movement a long time ago called existentialism. And those of you who had to um, endure the readings of Jean-Paul Sartre are familiar with this. Um, the idea in some ways is that, yes, we exist, but our existence is meaningless. And because our ex existence is inherently meaningless, part of the work of life is to figure out how to create meaning in a meaningless world. Okay, the Bible says that that's a false way of thinking about reality, that our lives are existentially meaningful. Our existence has meaning simply because we are people created in the image of God. And because the Bible starts on this foundation that life has meaning, what follows from that is a lot of statements about the meaningfulness of life. I'm not going to go through everything I've put in the notes because, uh, frankly, uh, I think it could be boring. So I'm just going to hit the highlights because I, I think it's just important that we understand that the Bible says some things that are unique. Number one, the Bible says our existence is real, which might seem like a weird thing to insist upon. But there's lots of worldviews that think our life is an illusion. In fact, do you know who Stephen Hawking is, famous scientist? One of the last things he wrote before he died, he said, actually, I think our universe is a holograph. I think our universe is an illusion. Okay, the Bible says it's not. The Bible says we live in a real world, and because we live in a real world, we don't have to treat life as an illusion. Life is real. One of the things that real is real is that there's good and evil. Once again, many different worldviews struggle with identifying what it is, and particularly here in the U.S., the most pushback we get is from atheism. And Richard Dawkins says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect. If at the bottom there is no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But the Bible says that's wrong. There are things that are evil. There are things that are good. This is a real world, not an illusory one. And when you experience the pain of evil, you're not experiencing an illusion. You're experiencing real world fallout from this thing called evil. And then when you find healing and hope and salvation, you're experiencing a real world implication of the goodness that God has embedded in the world. The Bible claims that we're morally significant people. For one, we can make good and evil choices because good and evil is a real thing in a world that's not an illusion. And while we may be influenced by other things, we are influenced by heredity. We're influenced by our environment. We can be influenced by trauma. There are things that influence us. The Bible makes a claim that we are people with free will. Uh, it's fascinating in American culture, especially from the more atheistic side, there's an increasing insistence that we are not people of free will at all. We're more like robots. I'll get to that in a second. But the Bible makes a claim that fate does not force us. 
that we are morally significant people, and because of that, when we do good, we are praiseworthy. When we do evil, we are blameworthy. Thus, there can be consequences for our choices. And while, of course, the Christian worldview offers hope and salvation and forgiveness in those situations, uh, it remains true what the Bible says, and that is we reap things that we sow because it's a real world, and we reap good or evil things, and we sow them. Even if things are sowed into our lives, they can have a lot of significance. At some point, we are morally responsible people. And the Bible's clear about that. And that's why also the Bible can claim that there's a thing called justice. Because if the world is an illusion or there's no good or evil or we're not morally responsible people, what is justice? If justice is righting wrongs and there are no wrongs, then there is no justice. But the Bible claims there is justice. In fact, there's justice in this life and there is justice in the world to come. And the Bible claims we have intrinsic eternal worth. Most worldviews will ascribe worth to people. But what I'm talking about is the foundational reason about why people have worth. The Bible says we bear God's image. There is something about us that our creator gave to us that we're now these representatives or icons of God on the earth. And Jesus says what you've done to the least of the people. It's as if you've done it to God. I mean, that is moral, intrinsic, and eternal worth. I remember years ago reading an interview with a physicist in Time magazine who described people as chemicals running around in a bag. Um, Scott Adams, the guy who's behind Dobert, I don't know if you know this, but he's a bit of a philosopher. He describes us as moist robots. Uh, there's an idea floating around that we're all just zombies. Um, that we don't actually have a soul or a consciousness. It's all just a trick. We're just meat puppets, if I can quote Bruce Willis from The Fifth Element. Right, but the Bible says that's not true. I mean, obviously, we're physical beings, and obviously, there's chemicals in us and all those types of things. But the Bible says we're, we're not reduced to that. There's something that God has placed in us, a soulishness that intrinsically gives us value, worth, dignity, meaning on an eternal scale. Dinesh D'Souza gives two competing stories about the world. He says, here's the first option. You're a descendant of a tiny cell of primordial protoplasm washed up on an empty beach three and a half billion years ago. You're a mere grab bag of atomic particles, a conglomeration of genetic substance. You exist on a tiny planet in a minute solar system in an empty corner of a meaningless universe. You came from nothing and are going nowhere. Or you are the special creation of a good and all-powerful God. You're the climax of his creation. Not only is your kind unique, but you are unique among your kind. Your creator loves you so much and so intently desires your companionship and affection that he gave the life of his only son that you might spend eternity with him. That's the truth the Bible is talking about. And as we go through the rest of our statement of faith, you're going to see that what we're saying about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about sin and salvation and all these things, we're grounding it in the revelation of Scripture and its truthfulness. Uh, but I want to finish with something that's a little more practical. If the Bible is true, 
then it is important about how we apply this in our life. I mentioned this last Sunday already, the importance of being doers of the word and not hearers only. My question is, do we follow these conclusions? And I'd love to talk about this more in Message Plus because I need to wrap this up here shortly. But is there design in the universe, biblically speaking? Absolutely. As followers of Christ, I think we all say that very readily. Yes, we are. There is design. Okay, so am I designed? Absolutely. All right. What is God's design for my use of my finances? What is God's design for my expression of my sex life? What is God's design for how I use my words? What is God's design for what I do with my time? What is God's design for, I mean, if we really believe this, then we have to ask the follow-up questions. How does God design for me too? What is God's design for me as a husband? What is God's design for Sheila as a wife? What's God's design for me as a father? What's God's design for Vincent as a son? All of these implications follow. And, and we can't be the kind of Christians that simply say broadly, yay, design. And, and then when it starts to get personal, go, oh, I don't know. I, I, that's an old book. <clears throat> Do people matter in the Bible? Absolutely, people matter. So do we say, I have to look out for myself? Or do we realize, oh, if everybody matters, then I do have to look out for myself in some sense. I bear the image of God. It's important that I, that I factor that into my life. But also, everybody around me bears the image of God. Those I like, those I don't like, those I... Um, I'm comfortable around, those I'm afraid of, you name it, they bear the image of God. So if this is true, what are the implications? What is God's design for me to interact with other image bearers? <clears throat> uh, we are moral beings with the privilege of making choices. Awesome. We look at the Bible and go, that's fantastic. But then we tend to want to say, but I think what I did last weekend wasn't my fault. Well, Okay. Now, there's room, if you look at my notes, there's more details. There's room for discussion about the impact of things, especially trauma. But the general message of the Bible is you, you can't just write off what, we can't just write off what we did and go, uh, eh, wasn't a big deal. Uh, it probably was to the sense that we make moral choices. Uh, we say people have inherent dignity and value and worth. Yeah. Bible's clear about that. But I do love reality shows where people are humiliated. Or, wow, I really gave Bob a piece of my mind. You should have seen his face. I don't know that we have permission to do that if people have value and worth and dignity. That's just porn. You can't say that if people have value and worth and dignity. Right? So it's more than just conceptual ideas of truth in Scripture. There's practical implication. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, says the Bible. Generosity is key, says the Bible. Yes, we love these ideas, but what's the first question we ask when we get our paycheck? Is it what can I buy or is it who can I help? Uh, maybe a better way to say that is what's in this for me versus what can I sow into the kingdom of God? Doesn't the Bible tell us that our first fruits are God's? That's not a trick question. 
All right, so what, if that's the teaching and I believe that's true and I have fruits that come into my life, is what I'm asking and thinking and acting upon, what does it look like to give my first fruits to God? Or am I asking, what does it look like to give my first fruits to me? Right, so this, this truth that we claim in Scripture, this foundational thing, is meant to be more than just a great idea and a hardbound book. It's meant to be something that sinks in and transforms our lives, where we're constantly going back to this foundation and saying, okay, if God revealed this to us, and I believe he did, that he's revealed this for our good and for his glory, and so... I need to take this seriously, not just as an idea that I applaud from a distance, but as something that I let sink into even the smallest areas of my life. One of the key things about the Bible is we don't get to pick or choose. This is an all or nothing commitment from Christians. And while there is room for us as Christians to wrestle with how to understand some of the more confusing parts, There is a foundational thing that is not confusing, it's just challenging and good and rewarding because it's the path to life. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.